Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. How worried should we be about democracy? I'm Sean Ailing, and I write for Vox about politics and philosophy. And I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Democracy Panic is basically its own genre of journalism at this point, and for good reasons. After the last four years, it's impossible to not worry about the future of democracy, not just in the U.S., but also across the globe. In this episode, I talked to CNN's Fareed Zakaria about, well, how worried should we be? Is the sort of democratic decline we're seeing in places like India and Hungary and Brazil a glimpse of our future? And if it is, what will the fallout be? Are we even prepared for it? Zakaria is the author of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, and he's uniquely positioned to answer these sorts of questions. In addition to being a scholar of international politics, he was one of the first people to notice the direction the world was heading in. Back in 1997, he wrote a now-famous essay called The Rise of Illiberal Democracy. What he saw was a form of reactionary populism sweeping across the democratic world. And virtually all of the trends he spotted then have only intensified. Indeed, those trends are now fixed realities. We talk about how he got here and why, despite all the disturbing signs, he thinks there's reason for optimism. Fareed Zakaria, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to be here. Okay, we're friends. So I, I actually just want to start not with a question, but with me just worrying aloud a little bit. <laughs> here we go. So I've always believed that the easiest thing to take for granted, especially if you've grown up in a relatively stable society is political order. But as you know, every liberal democratic society is basically a house of cards propped up by this you know, weird amorphous thing we call culture. And culture is the thing that makes the institutions work. It's the thing that binds citizens to each other and to public life. And I look at the country now and I don't see a sustainable culture. I don't even see a coherent culture. I see a very fragmented population, a very divided population. I see a country grasping at tired symbols and dead ideals, and the whole thing just feels very anchorless to me. And I'm aware that things have been worse before than they are today, but I'm still very worried. And I guess I just wonder, how are you feeling, Fareed? So to begin with, one has to acknowledge that part of the reaction to these kind of phenomena that you're describing is temperamental. I'm an immigrant. I came to this country. I'm also congenitally an optimist. So I worry less than most people, which means, I guess I'm saying, you know, how, how you tell people, take it with a grain of salt, take mine with the salt taken out. <laughs> you know, otherwise, I, <laughs> I, I may be too blasé. I may be too unworried, but let me explain to you why. So first, the point you make is absolutely true, the central point, which is that political order is rare, liberal political order is rarer still. And, and you know, I, th I think about these things when you look at what happened in Haiti over the last week or two, and you say to yourself, boy, why is that country so messed up? You know, and it's an interesting question historically, because the Dominican Republic, which shares uh, an island with Haiti has a per capita GDP that is now, I think, seven times greater than Haiti's. Uh, it has had 
basically a reasonable democratic uh, existence for the last 20 years, whereas Haiti is just this crazy basket case. And there's a rich historical explanation for why, but it reminds you of the point you're making, that this stuff is all very fragile and very path-dependent. And, you know, a wrong turn 150 years ago turns out to make a big difference. So I 100% agree with you that there is a fragility here that we should acknowledge. But let me give you my grounds for optimism. And they are fundamentally that the United States has a very strong, very resilient political order. It is you know, remarkable if you think about it. This is the oldest constitutional government in the world. We're a very young nation, but a very old state. If you think of it in those terms, the American state is much older than the German state, the Italian state. Even the French state in most senses, because France went through so much turmoil in the 19th century. Really, the only country in Europe, I think, that you could say has a continuous state of the kind of pedigree of the United States is Britain, Switzerland. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, but but it's rare. So why has it endured? Because the design is actually quite ingenious, uh, because we also inherited a political culture from Britain that has been very resilient. And so when I look at that backdrop and I say, how dangerous are, are the circumstances now? There's no question we face a particular challenge. And let's be clear about it. There is one party, the Republican Party, that is animated by a base that has really soured on democracy, feels as though you know the world is slipping away. There is a kind of end of days millenarian aspect to it, which says we have to fight, but otherwise our country is going away. And that's all very worrying. But is this worse than the period of Jim Crow, which seemed very stable when you had a settled political order in which it was completely understood that African-Americans were going to be treated not like second-class citizens, but as quasi-slaves in the South particularly. Is it more difficult than the period of the Red Scares, more difficult than the period before the Civil War or even right after the Civil War? So, I mean, we've had periods of intense, intense conflict. We've also had periods that have been very stable but deeply unjust. And what I'd say was we're somewhere in the middle here. Because what's happening is it's not just the Republican Party that is the spoiler here. The other piece of it is that there is in the Democratic Party a kind of insistence that some of these old problems not be swept under the rug anymore, that to the degree to which there is structural and systemic racism, it has to be confronted. There is a kind of frustration with the liberal project, which says the process must be fair. Don't worry too much about the outcome. You know, there is a liberal insistence or far left insistence that no, we've got to fix the outcomes. All of this is creating a lot of tension and a lot of conflict in the society. But I don't yet get the sense that we need to worry about the American political project itself. The one thing that worries me is the issue of voting. It's not even, honestly, the voter suppression tactics that the Republican Party is attempting. Those are, frankly, very old, and there's lots of history of voter suppression and laws trying to suppress voting, not just in the United States, but particularly in the United States. What worries me the most is the efforts to politicize the counting of the votes, the certification of the votes, because that really does get at the core of the American liberal political project, which is that there are certain things that are done in an impartial fashion. Law, the adjudication of justice, and elections as part of it. So that does worry me, but I guess I am hoping there will be sufficient pushback there that if there were an effort, it would be met with real resistance. There's a good piece in The Atlantic by the guys who wrote uh, How Democracy Dies, um, the two Harvard academics, and they talk about the danger here of the Republican Party trying to kind of fix the next presidential election. That's the one danger I worry about. But the culture, I mean, we've had a pretty broken culture at various points in American history. Well, let's zoom back just a little bit and then kind of work our way back to some of these present problems you're pointing to. I'll go back to 1997. This is something you and I discussed in our, our last conversation. And you wrote 
you know, was now a, a very well-known essay pointing to the rise of, of what you called a liberal democracy, which is a contradiction in terms for a lot of years. What did you see at the time that so worried you? At the time, you know, to paint the picture, this is the mid-1990s. The Cold War is over. Soviet Union has collapsed. Communism is discredited worldwide. And it feels like the triumph of, uh, of liberal democracy, the end of history. And what I started to notice was in country after country, the places that were becoming democracies often had a peculiar kind of democracy where they did have elections. They were by and large free and fair, but the elected governments were then pretty systematically undermining some core liberal concepts like minority protections, uh, protection of free speech, in some ways the rule of law by packing the judiciary, separation of church and state where that was appropriate. And so what I was watching was, as you said, this kind of oxymoron, not liberal democracy, but illiberal democracy. And the reason it sounds like an oxymoron is in the Western world, certainly circa 1997, it seemed as though these two concepts happily went together. But what I did was I did a little bit of archaeological work in explaining that actually the democratic project, which is really about elections, is quite separate from the liberal project, what I call, I think, the article constitutional liberalism, which is really about if the democratic project is about who governs, you know, majorities, the liberal project was on limitations of governmental power to preserve liberty. So if you think about it, you know, the American Constitution is actually fundamentally and deeply imbued with this liberal project in the sense that the Bill of Rights, for example, is all about what government cannot do, even if a majority wants to do it. That spirit was very absent in countries where new elections were being held from Belarus to Ghana to Philippines to Russia. So Russia was a central example I gave that Yeltsin was increasingly ruling like an elected dictator. And that problem I saw as being a really worrying one because I could see that in those countries, they did not have the culture, they did not have the history that was going to infuse the liberal project with weight and depth. Now, I have to confess, I worried a little bit about illiberal democracy in the Western world. Uh, a kind of populism that was taking root. But I never expected to see what we have seen in these last five years, which is from Poland to Hungary to the United States, a willingness for majorities and elected leaders to really rub up against core liberal concepts like independent judiciary, like independent election commissions and processes. And it's happening in those places. It's happening in places like India and Turkey, which were somewhat established democracies. So the whole thing is very worrying. I mean, I don't mean to suggest that we, we have not taken one step back, maybe one and a half steps back. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, 40 years ago, there were still probably half as many democracies in the world as there are today. Is there... I guess for lack of a better word, what you would call kind of like a paradigmatic example of an illiberal democracy today? Like what is the most kind of pronounced or clear example of that kind of regime right now? The most worrying one to me right now is India, because India was this miracle, very poor country that had managed to have essentially sustained democratic governance since 1947. There's a two-year uh, interregnum when Indira Gandhi in the mid-1970s declares emergency rule and suspends civil liberties. But other than that, it had had a pretty strong democratic uh, experience and one with real opposition parties, real alternation of power, an independent judiciary, and a free press. So if you think about it, you know, for this is for 75 years, it felt deeply ingrained in the system. And over the last five years, the Modi regime has managed to overturn many of these elements of constitutional liberalism in India. They have managed to intimidate the media in a very clever way. By the way, this is very similar to Viktor Orban in Hungary, by getting between friends and industrialists who are cozy with the government, uh, intimidation, the withdrawal of government advertising. 
they have intimidated the press almost entirely. There are some smaller publications that still are very spirited and very strong. And there's one TV channel that continues to battle a uh, lonely battle, but it has been subjected to the most extraordinary government persecution. Um, income tax cases made up out of whole cloth and things like that. The judiciary has been packed. The election, independent election commission has been packed. And to me, most worrying, there isn't a great deal of pushback. It turns out that you know, if you do it particularly in a clever way where you're using the language of democracy to undermine democracy itself, it's much harder to fight back than I would have suspected. And many fewer people are fighting back. So it's it's not that India is the worst offender. It's given how far along it had gone, given how admirably rooted democracy seemed, and then to see this extraordinarily clever undermining you know, and to see the fact that Modi remains very popular. All of that, you know, you put that all together and it's very worrying because it is a kind of Orwellian future. It's sort of, um, you know, what people often forget about 1984 is that Orwell was saying, this is what all societies are going to look like. This is not just the enemy. We're all going to look like this. And to me, that's the worrying part about the Indian story, which is maybe democracy itself is moving in this much more mixed, illiberal fashion. And when you use a phrase like using the language of democracy to undermine democracy itself, do you mean essentially exploiting the openness and the freedom of a society to manipulate a society to you know, either self-undermine or using the tools of freedom to undermine freedom by spreading you know, fascist ideologies or whatever the case may be? Exactly. It's at several levels. First, using popular sovereignty, using the fact that it is often popular for majorities to persecute minorities. It's often popular to create an other. In Modi's case, it's largely been Indian Muslims. And to say, you know, these people have to be treated badly because they're traitors, they're anti-national, things like that. Part of it is using the technology of, of social media, which is, you know, itself in some senses very open and liberating, but to spread a certain illiberal ideas. Part of it is using the ordinary tools of democratic governance or of governance. For example, Modi's government is too smart to shut down Twitter. Right. And they also want to take advantage of the fact that they, the BJP, has an enormous following on Twitter, Modi himself and many other BJP leaders. So instead, what they do is they give Twitter the names and accounts of a whole series of people and say, these people are inciting threats to public order and public safety. They are inciting hatred and fear and violence. And so we are asking you to shut down these accounts. Now, it so happens that almost all those people are people who were just criticizing the government. For example, a few of them were cases of people who were simply criticizing the government's COVID response and pointing out that the government had failed in its COVID response. And the government's response was, these people are inciting panic about COVID. And they use the pandemic to shut down all those accounts. So it's all being done in the language of ordinary liberal democratic constitutional government. But the effect is to undermine liberal democratic constitutional government. I'm curious how you would compare the, the rate of democratic decline in India with the rate of democratic decline in the United States. I mean, I'm tempted. A lot of people have referred to the U.S. as in a, a liberal democracy, but that, that doesn't seem quite right. I mean, even with Trump, what we had wasn't a popular authoritarian using his popularity to nuke democracy. Trump was and remains deeply unpopular. What we had was a major party refusing to check an illiberal president and presiding over the erosion of the norms and practices that make our system function in the first place. So we seem to, to have an illiberal system at the moment, but not a democratic one. I would agree with that. The American system is much, much stronger than the Indian one, much more resilient. Let's not forget Trump lost. The votes were when Bush came to shove. Every Republican official in all 50 states did what they had to do. They followed the law. Mike Pence followed the law, even though it meant he himself was going to lose his office. And it's not just that. It's that 
the courts, by and large, uh, upheld the rule of law. They dismissed all the frivolous lawsuits that the Trump campaign was putting in place. But more generally, the courts over the period that Trump was in office, there were lots of Trump's policies that were unconstitutional or borderline constitutional that got either rolled back or trimmed in various ways. Independent agencies like the CIA, the FBI, refused to go along with Trump in many areas. You saw a lot of pushback in the United States in various ways. And I think that the American story is a somewhat different one. And I think you touched on it exactly right, which is it's the story of the Republican Party losing the ability to do what parties have historically done throughout certainly Western history. The reason political parties have been so central to the preservation of of liberal democracy is that what parties do is they channel public passion, public emotion, public anger, public joy into programs and policies that are compatible with a liberal democratic framework. You know, at least at their best, that's what parties do. And parties act as gatekeepers. You know, they rule out the most extreme fringes, the most anti-system or radical fringes on both sides. Now, that is one of the reasons why, I mean, the famous formulation of Clinton Rossiter, an American political scientist who said, no America without democracy, no democracy without political parties, no parties without compromise. And that formulation does express something very profound, I think. What has happened in America ever since the onset of the primaries in the 1960s is we have eviscerated the political parties and empowered all kinds of non-party actors, uh, you know, from the candidates themselves, the politicians themselves, to rich people through the fundraising process, whether it's political action committees or all the other ways in which this funding takes place. And the effect of that has been that the parties have gotten hollowed out. So I I don't really, I mean, I blame the Republican Party, but I understand what is going on, which is the political system has become one run almost entirely by small fringes that occupy the the extreme uh, wings of the party. This is particularly true in the Republican Party. And so what is going on when the party caves to Donald Trump is that they're all worried about losing the next primary, about losing the funding that comes at those early stages, which all tends to come from the most passionate, the most committed. So, you know, if you look in Europe, for example, one of the reasons you have not had a Trump-like takeover of a political party is because those parties are still strong for the most part. If you want to run for office and become chancellor of Germany, you need the organizational structure, the support, the fundraising that comes through the Christian Democratic Party or through any kind of party or organization. Whereas in America, the party is now nothing. It's basically the candidate, his or her Rolodex, his or her name recognition, and his or her ability to appeal to that most extreme slice of the electorate that is going to make those early decisions that make all the difference. So that's the problem in America. And I don't want to sound You know, many political scientists predicted this would happen. Nelson Polsby at the University of Berkeley, a good liberal, I should point out, predicted exactly what would happen if you abandoned the primary system and eviscerated the parties. Having said this, I don't know what the solution is because you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But it is worth noting that the United States is still the only advanced democratic country in which you have the strange process by which The party does not select candidates for the general election. The party holds an election to select candidates who are then in turn put before the general election. You know, this double election process that we have with the primaries, which tends to select towards the radical, is a uniquely American phenomenon. Now, it hasn't affected the Democratic Party as much. And I think this is for cultural reasons, but it has affected the Republican Party. Well, therein lies the problem here, right? If the parties are supposed to act as buffers or institutions that serve effectively as a a wall separating popular passions on the one side and public policy on the other, and we have a two-party system, and one of those parties has fundamentally collapsed in that respect, that doesn't seem sustainable at all. It's not sustainable, and something will... 
something will have to happen that Obama put it this way. He said the fever has to break and the fever will break. Well, I would say the fever has to break. I agree with half his sentiment. I don't know how the fever breaks in the short term, but I do believe that at the end of the day, you cannot sustain such a profoundly undemocratic attitude towards <laughs> towards elections in a democracy. This is not about, you know, being against liberalism. This is basically saying we will not accept the outcome of elections. So we're going to try and make sure as many ways we can, we make it difficult for people to vote. And then we're going to reserve the right to count the votes in creative ways to try to fudge the results if the results are close. That strikes me as something that will not survive. I mean, there's a possibility, I say this with due concern, it's a possibility that they might be able to do it once, but I think the backlash would be very strong. This is where my optimism comes in. I think that America remains a very vibrant political culture, democratic political culture. I think there would be a kind of revulsion. I don't think we would happily acquiesce into a kind of situation like is happening in India today. And by the way, I think India will also, there will be a reaction. I I think that the one nice thing about democracy is you have space for revolt, reaction, opposition movements. And if you win by enough, the cheating doesn't do enough. So that's my hope in India. And it's my much stronger hope in America. Let's take a quick break, but when we come back, when it comes to democracy, the U.S. has long been the worldwide model. But are those days over? Can Farid's optimism hold up in the face of everything we've been through in the past few years? That's after the break. Do you think that the U.S. can still be seen as a model or even the model for democracy worldwide, or is that ship sailed? I think the American system is still pretty extraordinary, and I think that there's still a lot to learn from it. You know, I'm I'm not one of these people who believes that the founding fathers were demigods who came from Mount Olympus, briefly appeared here, gave us a perfect constitution and then disappeared. And that every time we confront a problem, we should ask, what would James Madison have done? I think there's a kind of founder fetish sometimes. But I do think it's an extraordinary process that delivered an extraordinary product that, as I say, has been amazingly resilient. I think there's a lot to learn from it. But I think the mistake is not to recognize that it has flaws. You know, it always had flaws, uh, how to handle slavery. The issue of center-state relations had to be essentially redone and was redone by creatively interpreting things like the interstate commerce clause. But, you know, basically the federal government had too few powers and over time the balance was shifted. But that was something the founders got wrong. I mean, they got it wrong the first time. I mean, in 10 years, the original government collapsed, the Articles of Confederation. They tried again, and I would say there still were a great limitation. So I think the what we need to understand is any system, you know, I mean, Kant's great line out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. You know, there are lots of flaws in it. But when I look at it and say, compare this to, I don't know, Britain's unwritten constitution, Germany's post-war constitution, India's constitution, the U.S. is still extraordinarily admirable, attractive model that I do think people around the world could learn a lot from. I think you're right in saying that the, the luster has come off. And the luster has come off for a variety of reasons, ranging from the global financial crisis to 9-11, the Iraq war, and then Donald Trump. So I don't think it's all one thing. But I think in the long run, again, maybe I'm being optimistic, in the long run, you'll see 25 years from now, I think the U.S. constitutional democracy will still, I'm touching wood right now, will still be strong. And we'll see a lot of places where there will be problems and we'll still marvel at the resilience of the American system. Well, speaking of the long run, why do you think so many people assume that there's something inexorable about the logic of democracy, that once it was established, it would just keep evolving in the direction of more freedom and more liberalism? I mean, that was obviously not true, but I think it was a fairly widespread assumption. How do you account for that? 
I think that the reason people make that assumption and have made it, and you're absolutely right, it's something Tocqueville writes about in Democracy in America. He talks about the kind of democratic wave and the democratic revolution, and, and he foresees how this is going to inevitably spread. And clearly he was right because it appeals to people. It appeals to ordinary people. You know, it's a numbers game. If you're saying that the best form of government is the one in which everyone has a say versus a form of government in which a small number of people have a say, at the end of the day, more, more and more people are going to be convinced by the argument that they should have more of a say in their government than the opposite. So I think there is a logic you know, that this is fundamentally empowering of ordinary people. And in an age of mass politics, that's going to become more and more attractive. I think the mistake, and this is what I tried to get at in the illiberal democracy piece, was there is no such process that ensures that liberty will be preserved, that individual rights will be preserved, that minority rights will be preserved, that uh, freedoms of speech and association and religion will be preserved. You know, and, and Tocqueville thought about this even then. The tyranny of the majority was one of his great, great fears. That's the one I worry about. Look, we live in an age where even the, those who are dictators have to fake elections. That tells you something, right? That tells you right. about the power of the legitimacy conferred by the election that even Putin has to go through an elaborate ritual of having opposition parties and having contested elections and then the votes are counted and, oh, lo and behold, Vladimir Putin won 75% of the vote. That's still part of the dynamic. I mean, it's not as bad as the, the joke used to be about Mubarak in Egypt because of the crazy numbers he used to get. You know, Cordia comes to him and says, Mr. President, we have good news. The results are in. You have won 99.4% of the vote. What more could you ask for? And he said, well, the names and addresses of the 0.6% that didn't vote for me, please. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is there something in your mind, at least to the argument, that you hear on the right and the left? Uh, it's something I hear in particular from, I guess, what you might call the, the post-liberal right. And the argument is basically that liberalism is failing or it has failed because it succeeded, right? That because the market economy has produced a ton of wealth and prosperity, but the benefits have been so unequal. Power has been concentrated in the hands of so few that people feel estranged from their world and indignant over technocratic control. And they're just no longer invested in the project. I mean, are you sympathetic to that critique or is it too, I don't know, simplistic? No, actually, I think you get at something very profound. In a way, what we've been talking about, we've been talking around what I think is in some ways become the kind of central political problem of our age, which is that liberalism has largely succeeded or succeeded in larger measure than most people could imagine it would have succeeded historically. But there are still many outcomes that it produces that people don't like that people feel are unjust, right? And so the liberal response, and I still think of myself as a classical liberal, the liberal response is to say, well, you know why? Because that liberal process is actually not fair. Our meritocracy is not meritocratic enough. We have too many ways in which people can game the system. The economy is actually not open to competition. There are too many ways in which large companies are able to game the system and manipulate it. The processes of judiciaries and courts and prosecutors are not actually fair. There are inbuilt inequalities, particularly around race. And what we have to do is we have to really fix the liberal process fix this process so it is genuinely fair, genuinely open, genuinely meritocratic. That is my classical liberal response to that, to say we've managed to make a lot of progress, but there's still a long way to go and we need to fix this. But there are people on the right and the left, and it's important, I think, to understand that it's on the left as well, who say, you know what? We've been trying this for so long. We just want to fix the outcome. And on the left, people say, look, we need the outcomes to reflect America's you know, racial mix better, gender mix better. Let's just fix the outcomes. Let's just acknowledge that this liberal process is broken, and we'll just have essentially a kind of quota system. And on the right, it's even more crude where people say, look, let's just shut down the guys we don't like, whether that's big tech or trade-based companies, or China is the bogey for that, or immigrants. And let's just 
redistribute in a way that we think is right. You know, in both cases, they are saying, forget the liberal process. Let's just go directly to the outcomes and let's manipulate the outcomes. And that is, to my mind, a very dangerous place to go because then we're back to a kind of old-fashioned politics, which is really about to the winner go the spoils. And if I win this election, I get to adjust the spoils. You know, so that's why Donald Trump saw no contradiction in saying simultaneously, I'm the businessman, I understand business, I understand markets, and I'm going to make this system work so that businesses can do what they want. And yet he was the biggest provider of subsidies for his constituencies, like farmers, right? He puts the tariffs on China, and he, I think he ended up paying out $60, $80 billion of subsidies to American farmers. But that's not a contradiction for him. He's just like, my goal is to help my people, and I'm going to do it whatever way I can. And similarly, there are people on the left who say, look, let's just forget all this meritocratic system and just go to simple quarters that reflect the reality of how many Blacks are there are in New York City. There should be those many Blacks in New York City's most selective schools, Stuyvesant. You know, I have to ask, because you're someone who travels the world, you, you engage with some of the most powerful people on the planet, you go to Davos, I mean, these people come on your show, you know. And sometimes I really wonder how they, and by they I, I do mean the most powerful people in our world, fail to see that this game cannot go on forever that you can have rich people and you can have poor people but you got to have a buffer of a middle class in between we've known that at least since aristotle or the the system will just collapse under the weight of its own contradictions and sometimes i just wonder is the bubble really that thick is there a a level of self-awareness among that crowd that we've really careened too far off the tracks or is there a kind of naivete or blindness it's a number of things the bubble is thick I mean, it's, there's no question that we have developed a kind of uber class that is able to live in a hermetically sealed universe. Where I mean, if you just think about the life of a CEO today compared to the 1950s, there's very good data that shows you. I mean, 1950s, a CEO was quite likely to go to work by subway, was making you know 30 times as much as his average employee, lived in a place that was recognizable to an upper middle class person. Kids would go to the same schools. They would go skiing in the same places if they did go skiing, you know, vacationing. Now it's sort of like these people live in a world that is like a fantasy land. They have no contact. I've watched CEOs go from their offices in a chauffeured cars to the heliport with the helicopter takes them to the airport. The airport has the private plane waiting for them. And that's, of course, at the highest level. But it filters down, you know, the gated communities, the highly selective clubs. So part of it is that. Part of it is that these changes have happened uh, slowly over the last 40 or 50 years, the kind of evisceration of the middle class. And largely because of the rise of a knowledge economy that, you know, maybe overvalues, you know, college education and post-college education and technical skills and undervalues working with your hands. I, I think that the challenge is in order to address the problem you're describing, you need to attack it with a lot of firepower because the structural forces are moving in the opposite direction. You know, there's no question because it's happening everywhere in the world. And, and that this is a good example of how a social science mentality can help you understand this, which is, yes, the United States has this problem, but every advanced industrial country has a version of it. And so it can't be just our unique political system. It's happening everywhere. And you can see the reasons these structural forces like information revolution, globalization, and things like that. So to push against it, it takes a lot of firepower. And we have never been willing to do that. For example, why does Germany have a stronger manufacturing base than we do, particularly in terms of employment? The U.S. still manufactures a lot, but it doesn't have as many people involved in that process. Well, the Germans spend an awful lot of money on worker retraining, apprenticeship programs, things like that. We talk a good game, but I actually did the math once. Germany spends 20 times per capita what the United States spends on apprenticeship programs and worker retraining. So no surprise, they still have a a much larger, you know, as a percentage of the population, people who work at these kinds of jobs. So it, it just takes a lot. 
And part of it has been the phobias about deficits, the mythology that the market will solve all these problems, the degree to which people are insulated. It's a lot of things that have happened that produce this problem, and no one of them, I think, will will remedy it. We are beginning to have a you know a kind of rethinking of some of the Reaganite Thatcherite ideology. We are having a rethinking about deficits. We're having a rethinking about the government being able to do things that are effective and useful. So my guess is once we throw the kind of resources and ingenuity, it's not just resources, at this problem, we'll come up with some answers and it'll be a slower process than it should be, but we'll get somewhere. I think our mentality has begun to change. This is one of the points I made in the post-pandemic world. I think that on two or three of these issues that are really fundamental, the you know markets um, and government being the center of them, we have made a turn. You know, I've been working on a on a book with a co-author, a book that you very mercifully blurbed a few years ago when we we started working on it. You know, in that book, we're trying to think of democracy less as a, a body of institutions and more as a kind of wide open culture of communication and a culture that is shaped in large part by the tools it uses to communicate and the passions they they promote and the people who use them. You know, our media environment doesn't just reflect the world back at us. It determines what we pay attention to, what gains salience, how we think and orient ourselves in the world. I mean, in a very real way, it guides our construction of reality. I mean, just think of how print changed politics and then TV. Now the internet, as you just mentioned, in India has upended a lot of political systems across the globe. I'm curious how you see the role of media in our democratic society and really across the democratic world today. Do you see it as a kind of foundational problem or is it just an ancillary concern in comparison to some of these other problems that we've talked about, like inequality or, or polarization? Uh, I don't have anything profound to say about the media. I have to confess, I, I because part of it is I'm, I don't have real clarity in my mind about how I would answer your question. My instinct is that the problem is much deeper and more structural, and that the media reflects these problems rather than creates and causes them. You know, we are living in a more polarized way. So if you look at the map of the United States, people basically have chosen to live with people with whom they agree politically. You know, you see the clusters around the big cities, even the close-in suburbs being democratic, like Bethesda is now 90% democratic, but the Virginia suburbs, which are further out, are Republican. You know, so if you see that level of polarization, you see the divide between educated and college-educated and non-college-educated grow so deep, the divide between religious and non-religious again, one of the strongest indicators of what your politics are, then I think that the big shift, of, and I'm not saying anything profound, was that we have gotten to the point where the media has disaggregated enough that you can choose your source of news rather than getting the central sources of news. And that is an accelerator, but I don't think it's a fundamental cause. But let me give you one example that I do think that people don't think about enough, about how, again, so much of this has to do with the fact that the system now works in a way where you have the rule by minority, by the extreme minorities, you know, by Twitter, by the primary electorate rather than the general electorate. So when people think about media today, it's common to say, oh, we used to have a period when people listened to a commonly accepted body of news, and now one side wants Fox, the other side wants MSNBC. Well, if you look at the numbers, Here's what really happened. You had about, I'm going to just guesstimate here, 80, 90, 100 million people out of 150 million people in America in the 1960s who would watch the news on three networks. And then that you have the great disaggregation and you end up here. But what happened to those people? Well, the vast majority of the people who would listen to the evening news because there was nothing to do but watch TV and only three places to watch it. And the news you got was roughly the same in all three places. They stopped watching the news. They were fundamentally apolitical or not particularly political. So when the great disaggregation of media takes place, what they start to do is they start watching ESPN or they start watching Discovery or they start watching you know, A&E and they start watching the Kardashians. They're not watching the news anymore. 
the small sliver of politically active people gravitate toward cable news. And so what you have now is a political system which used to be run by the vast majority in the center who were not particularly political, right? But that was who you had to cater to. But now it is run by that small minority of people. I mean, Fox's best show gets three and a half million. MSNBC and CNN get about a million, million and a half each. So what is that? That's under 10 million people in a country of 340 million people. Those are the political junkies. They tend to be more extreme. That's what gets their juices going. But what's new and different is that the political system now runs and caters to those rhythms and dynamics rather than to the rhythms and dynamics of that old system. Because that in that, you know, you had to cater to the middle where now you can cater to the extreme. So that's the part that feels to me fundamentally different. If you're an American concerned about democratic decline and you were looking about for a glimpse of our possible future, if we don't right the ship, what country would you point to? India, Brazil, Poland, Hungary? What? Oh, all of those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, the most worrying are, are places like India and Hungary, because they've had real democracy, Hungary not for so long. But India, as I say, remains to me the one that I worry the most about, because it had the deepest democratic culture. Turkey is worrying because the kind of independent culture of law was very strong, courts were very strong, and they have all been undermined. I think that it's interesting to ask the question, who's done okay? You know, a lot of the continental European countries have done okay, Germany, even France. And maybe part of that is that they have, after 45, they had had a very bad experience with populism, which in Germany was called national socialism. It was a kind of combination of nationalism and not so much socialism, but a kind of totalitarian government control of everything. And as a result, the parties are stronger. There are more obstacles. There are more gatekeepers and guideposts and things like that. The puzzle in America is there are many of those in in the Madisonian structure. What is worrying is that you have this one party that is trying to really destroy them or, or weaken them or eliminate them. And This is something Madison never conceived of because he hated political parties. He thought political parties were terrible for precisely this reason, that they would adopt a kind of my party over my country attitude, and that that's why they were bad. That's why he imagined a political system with lots of different factions, each one canceling themselves out. And again, this is one more example of how he was wrong. He was dead wrong about that because he himself presided over the founding of the first political party. So there's something kind of inevitable about these kind of groups and group rivalries. And maybe the American system does not have an adequate defense against what do you do if one of those parties you know, has a fundamental flaw? I mean, let's think of it. The Democratic Party had a fundamental flaw. It was pro-slavery. That was why the American system was not able to exorcise that problem for a hundred years after the abolition of slavery. It is why when you went to America, to the South in America in the 1950s, you experienced something that you experienced in no other advanced industrial country, which was blacks being treated like virtual slaves. It was because you had a party that was committed to it and the party discipline, everything worked in the wrong way because the party discipline allowed for that evil to be perpetuated. So, you know, when you have the Republican Party that has fundamentally something rotten at the core, it's very hard to exorcise. Okay, we're going to take just one more short break, but when we're back, since Trump, I have a lot of worries about the future of American democracy. But my biggest worry is this. If another, more sophisticated version of Trump comes to power, what happens then? I asked Fareed for his take after the break. My big worry, and a lot of people have shared the same concern has always been, you know, what is the next Trump 
look like? I mean, for all the damage he caused, Trump was still a kind of clown, in my opinion, and his clownishness limited the amount of damage he could do and did. But what if the next wannabe autocrat isn't a wannabe at all? What if he or she actually combines the ethno-nationalist pitch with a real populist agenda and that agenda is co-opted by the Republican Party? What happens then? That is a great concern. I think Trump was sort of so bizarre in so many ways. One, he was sort of clownish. Two, he fundamentally didn't know how to govern and didn't care about governing. So it was all mostly tweets and announcements rather than actual policy. And finally, he was sort of weird and mercurial and a contradictory. So there were times at which he would undermine his own agenda you know, like the weird obsession with being nice to Putin, even while his administration was pursuing anti-Russian policies. You know, what you're asking is, what if you end up with the kind of sophisticated, coherent, and even more evil, malign version of Trump? Um, I don't have an answer to it. I guess my hope is that part of what made Trump attractive to so many people in America was precisely the kind of weirdness and celebrity and entertainer and he was great fun to listen to. He wasn't this dark, evil, proto-fascist when you listen to him. And my hope would be that if the kind of person you're describing would just not attract as many votes, but it's a thin read, I have to confess. You know, we're both agreeing. The fundamental problem is that the parties have lost the ability to internally discipline and weed out and exercise. And so if that's the case, what happens if one of the major parties is taken over? I mean, a lot is going to depend on what happens in the next four years in that does Trump get nominated again? Here's a scenario that I think is one that perhaps is the best. The party continues on this mad embrace of Trump. He is nominated again because nobody else can quite out-Trump Trump. And he loses in a crushing, humiliating defeat that makes the Republican Party realize this was the wrong path to go down. I don't know that that'll happen, but I, you know, if I would have painted a scenario that I think is best for the country, it's some kind of big repudiation of Trump and Trumpism, rather than you know getting a quasi-Trump who mouths some of the rhetoric and is clever about it and actually wins because they managed to disguise it all. Because then the party is still of the view that the Trump experience was positive. It ended up getting them something. And these kind of crazy ideas like, you know, relating to elections and voting are all okay. Well, what about the other party? What about the Democrats? Do you think that the party in general understands what they're up against? Do they understand the populist threat? Can they be trusted with power? I mean, this, at least for a lot of people, might be the last chance for real structural democratic reform. And it does not appear that they're going to do what is necessary to pass it. That doesn't leave me with a lot of hope. Uh, I'm curious if you think uh, they're up for this moment. So first to say, you know, it sounded like I've been pissing on the Republicans. Uh, and I want to be clear. I have lots of problems with the Democrats. I think there are many areas where I don't like their policies. I don't think that they govern a lot of their states particularly well. You know, if you look at New York, I mean, New York has basically the same budget as California with half as many people. You sort of look at that and say, why? So all I mean is, at least for me, there are a lot of problems with the Democrats. But there is no comparison between the two. The Democratic Party is functioning like a normal political party in a democratic system. It has debates, it has disputes. You know, Parts of the party want to do certain kinds of public policies that I agree with, and other parts trying to do public policies I disagree with. That's an honorable fight. You know, It should be aired, it should be fought. There is very little in the Democratic Party that is fundamentally anti-democratic, anti-liberal in this sense that we are talking about. The real question is, can they fight the Republican Party in the way that they need to? I think they're trying on the voter suppression. They're trying very hard. They're trying on you know some of the other things, the composition, you know, making sure that there are impartial panels that count the votes and things like that. But the truth is, we have a 
fundamentally state-driven system. And there are many places in which the Republicans control everything in the state. And so what can you do? The Democrats in the Texas are thinking of kind of literally fleeing the state so that there isn't a quorum to be able to enact some of these laws. But it points to the problem, which is, look, these laws are democratically made. And if the Republicans dominate those states, what are you going to do about it? And that gets to what I think you were hinting at, which was the issue of should they be trying to abolish the Electoral College, give statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico, abolish the filibuster? Look, I'm in favor of some of those things. I think that, for example, if Wyoming can be a state, why should Puerto Rico not be a state? I think that the filibuster, at the very least, should go back to what it was, which was something used very, very rarely. If you look at the number of times it was used in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, it's basically about less than 5% as much as it's being used now, or it should be eliminated. It's not part of the Constitution. It's a bizarre outgrowth, a barnacle. But the challenge is you have a political system where the Democrats are not dominant. Let's be honest. The Democrats sometimes talk as if there has been a a democratic realignment, and we are in America in 1936. Roosevelt has just won re-election the second time with a House and Senate that are both democratic. <laughs> but that's not where we are. We're in a deeply divided country. The House is most likely going to flip back to the Republicans in one year. In that context, what can you do? What should you do? That's the harder question. And I don't think there is an easy answer. You know, is the answer ram down some of these changes and hope for the best, even if they get undone, you know, the minute later? Is it to try to build the intellectual basis to allow it to happen? I don't know. I mean, I think that to my mind, the Biden administration is trying to do the right thing in the short term, which is try to demonstrate that a government that is competent, that is imbued with certain values, is able to deliver and that you have tangible results. So you got the COVID relief bill, you have to get the infrastructure bill, you try and get you know, the third bite at the apple so that you demonstrate that there is actual government that is working and you build from that coalition and then try to do the broader stuff. If you try and do the broader stuff, first of all, you won't have the votes to get the other stuff passed. I mean, you know, if you alienate the people like Manchin, you're not going to be able to do it. And secondly, I think it does miss this underlying political reality. There isn't a liberal governing majority in America right now. On some issues, you could argue there's a liberal governing majority. But when people are asked to vote in the American system as it's constituted, it's still very closely divided. I mean, if you look at it at the state level, the Republicans dominate, not the Democrats. There are many more Republican states than Democratic states. And that is the system we have. You know, We can't redo it and make it one where states don't matter. So given that, I think that Biden's strategy is probably the right one. I would like to see a greater kind of energy placed on the kind of building the coalition for things like D.C. statehood or the abolition of the filibuster and things like that. And maybe, you know, maybe the filibuster can just be done. That's one that I feel as though, you know, maybe it's just worth either getting a deal that says we are almost literally formally committing to the idea that this will be used in the same way it was 50 years ago, or you abolish it. But it's very tough when you have a country as divided as we are. You know, I think when people look at FDR and Johnson, I totally agree that they are extraordinary political operators, the two greatest politicians of the 20th century, without any question in the American context. But in both cases, they had both the House and the Senate, you know, and it's a different task to try and transform the country when you don't even have those mechanisms through which you can affect that transformation. I take all those points and I confess to not having all the answers either. And I'm acutely aware that doing some of these things that have been suggested could entail some kind of backlash beyond anyone's anticipations, or it could accelerate some kind of a liberal death spiral that we can't escape from. But at the same time, it's not clear to me what the alternative is. I mean, given the realities that you've laid out, given the trajectory of the Republican Party, the reality of you know, gerrymandered districts and like a very explicit effort to suppress voting rights. It seems as though 
the price of inaction is just unbearably high. But again, I, that's not a plan. And I, I no, I know, that. I know. I'm hoping. You know? I'm hoping the old democratic hope that the demographic trends are moving the country to a more sensible place. You know that if you look at younger people, they're much more likely to be skeptical of this kind of populism. If you look at the more people go to college or any kind of post high school education, the more they tend to be, you know, skeptical. So, I mean, maybe there's a hope that I know that it's been one that people have talked about in the past and hasn't quite worked out. And I know all the complications. The Hispanics are trending, you know, if anything, a little bit more Republican. But all that said, the broad demographic trends are actually in a moving in a positive direction politically. Well, you said before that a Hungary or a Poland, or for that matter, an India, descending into authoritarianism is obviously bad, and we should be worried about that. But it's not as bad as America falling apart, because America's fate holds, in your words, enormous symbolic value. Um, what do you mean by that? Oh, it's not even just symbolic value. I think it holds enormous actual value. Yeah. Let me put it this way. If the Soviet Union had won the Cold War rather than the United States, would the fate of democracy and the state of democracy in the world have been the same? And did the United States win the Cold War only because it managed to outmaneuver the Russians in Afghanistan? Or was it because there was seen around the world a kind of greater vitality to the political and economic model that the United States had? To my mind, clearly the latter. So the strength of American democracy and capitalism plays an enormous role in both symbolically strengthening democracy and some form of free markets and, and open societies around the world, but also actively helps in that process. I mean, the United States is seen as a country that dominates the global agenda, shapes global institutions, provides enormous amounts of resources. All those get directed in ways that reflect those values. Um, I mean, I think that we don't understand the degree to which America has cast this shadow on the world, particularly since 1945, because it's been so present that it's almost like the shadow is so big that you can't see it. But imagine, you know, without the United States and the whole panoply of international institutions that it's set up with all the values that are imbued and laden in it, and all the places the United States has made speeches, issued demarches, you know, criticized countries for human rights abuses, if none of that had been there. I think it'd be a much more liberal, much less democratic world. This doesn't all happen automatically. Just as democracy in, in the United States is not self-executing, democracy worldwide is not self-executing. Well, you said at the top of this conversation, and I think you said it to me three or four years ago when we first spoke, that you were an eternal optimist about America, precisely because you're an immigrant. How much optimism is left in that tank? Are you still holding on to it? Yeah, I'm still optimistic. I still believe we'll get through it. It's still an amazingly resilient country. It's amazingly resilient politically, economically. I mean, just look at, with all our flaws, look at the economy and look at the way in which it is able to innovate and adapt and transform. I still think that there's dynamism and vitality. And as I say, you know, particularly when you think about young people, young people today seem to me to want to live in a country in which really they're trying to build a kind of universal nation where your race and caste and creed and sexual orientation, none of it matters. Everyone is more equally treated. Now, some of it is mushy idealism. Some of it can be caricatured as being woke platitudes. But there's a spirit of idealism there and there's a spirit of empathy that I kind of, I admire and I appreciate. So I hope that that, that, that gestalt, that general feeling has an effect and translates politically. But I recognize this is a big fight. This is the fight of our lives politically. Uh, and we have to all engage and we all have to make our voices heard in a way that is perhaps more important and louder and stronger than at any point since the Civil War, certainly since the Civil Rights Movement, because the stakes are very high, and it will take very concerted action 
to move us along the path that I think, that I hope, that American history guides us towards. In other words, I don't think this will happen naturally, but I do think there is a kind of inherent logic in the American experiment that would move us in the right direction if we push really hard. That feels like a good place to end. I, I just want to say thanks again for being here. I'm, I'm kind of groping around for some optimism to, as a counterweight to my own pessimism and I always feel a little better after we uh, engage so you were one of the first interviews I did when I was still a little puppy journalist I really enjoyed that interview I still remember it and I gave it readily because I saw in you a little bit of my own past trajectory you're also a kind of lapsed academic as was I political scientists unite <laughs> Again, I really appreciate it, and I always learn something when we speak, and we hope to do it again. Sean, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostaska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of Audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode. <laughs>